Hey everyone, this is Michael. In our final episode of the year, Stefan, Courtney, Mike and I got together to do a bit of a recap, just like we did last year. We talked about our favorite reads, our favorite listens, our fieldwork experiences, or mostly the lack thereof, and what we found interesting and exciting about new work on non-traditional comments. Have a safe and happy new year, everyone. This is the In Common Podcast. I just did my AGU talk, so I'm a little frazzled. <laughs> Somebody else wants to moderate. How'd it go? Did the AGU chat talk. Got the kids to school. And, now and then ran to this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was fine. It's, oh, man, it's so bizarre, the online. And that's the, like the, most, the biggest conference ever. So they have a hybrid. Have you guys done a hybrid yet? No. I've Not just been avoiding the conference crazy. circuit. Crazy. Yeah, super crazy. It's like, I don't, there's like so many layers of like, can't handle it. But the session had like eight, at least eight computers up so that if everybody was in person, everybody would have like a video and a Zoom, like be able to talk. And then there were the online people. And then there was an in-person audience and somehow it worked. Like they've got it down. Um, but it, it was sort of mind boggling. Is it in San Francisco? The non it's in New Orleans, New Orleans. Oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah. And then I was in, I went to this like virtual poster chat, which was like very disorienting, but somehow worked. So I don't know. They're figuring it out, but anyways, yeah. it's just boggles my mind. So I'm a little frazzled. <laughs> I don't envy like the logistical people at any organization these days. No. But I, I will agree that the commons conferences were very well organized. I thought that worked quite well. Yeah. All the digital ones. Um, well, we don't need to talk about this, but we could add that. Okay. We should start talking though. We should. <clears throat> okay. So I could, I mean, I could just pitch what I had as the questions. Go for it. I mean, I'm okay. happy to too, Courtney, if you're just done. Okay. You do it. You okay. do it. <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah. Well, I mean, so one of the questions was like, what are your favorite publications? So why don't we just include books into that category and Mike can start us off since that's where you were chomping at the bit to do. Um, sure. So the, well, the book recommendation that I had for the year is not um, it's, it's, it's definitely not explicitly an academic book. It's um, it's a very light, heavy read. And by that, I mean that the writing is very uh, flip and fun, um, but it's covering basically everything to do with racial relations right now. And the book's called Hell of a Book by Jason Motts. It just won a bunch of awards, but it's um, about this author that's going on a book tour about his book called Hell of a Book. And in the process, it talks about police shootings, um, what it's like to grow up um, Black in America. And there's a variety of different encounters and a lot of it happens in the author's mind he's he clearly imagines things and know that he imagines things and so he's not always sure what's real and what's not it's just a, a fascinating story um, so that's uh, a non-academic book but I think it's quite helpful in the age in which we're living to living in to to think about um, highly recommend to to everyone hmm. cool yeah. yeah, I didn't. I didn't have uh, too many books 
on my schedule. I read quite a few books at the beginning of the year and then got busy and then got more busy and then kind of fell away from books. Um, <laughs> and I'm coming back to it again. And I can't remember if I mentioned it last year, but uh, Michael, we, I had mentioned it to you. I think last time we talked this book range mm -hmm. by um, David Epstein. Mm -hmm. And it's also not an academic book, but I think it is helpful for many academics who find themselves as maybe not exactly a specialist, but someone who can link across problem areas, different types of methods, interdisciplinarity thinking. And it also talks about, well, the premise of the book is that not everyone's a specialist and that sometimes developing a range of different skill sets is what eventually makes people successful because they can bring skills and ideas together and they can use their skills, which uh, across different facets of life or facets of growing up and experiences to ultimately focus in on a specific problem or task, which can better be solved for, uh, with a variety of, of skill sets. And that the process of stumbling uh, kind of through your career and changing careers and pathways is actually beneficial in many cases. Um, I find that that particularly resonated with me having done various things in the last decade or so before that. Um, and also a bit counter to this narrative, especially in science that you should, it's always optimal to specialize and become an expert in one specific thing. And that being a generalist is also uh, useful in its own way. So I found it really interesting. Yeah. I mean, one kind of meta comment to make, right. Is that we're kind of even talking about quote unquote, non-academic books is kind of testing slash proving that hypothesis. Like I've, I've been reading a lot of non-academic stuff this year and just loved it, but there is, it feels like this activation energy to get over like Mike, what made you think, you, you know, I want to read this book about race relations. Like that's, that doesn't feed directly into like a metric necessarily that you're going to be rewarded for in your job. And it's just easy to fall into that trap. It's like, there's, there's stuff that counts and stuff that doesn't. And I feel like that's a big trap that stops us from expanding our range in the way that this book describes. Yeah, in the way it relates to our, to our actual jobs and work, I'm, I'm finding that um, I, I noticed, I noticed that I would make recommendations for books, articles, some, some academics, some not to my classes and just kind of offhand. Oh, this reminds me, I, I read this book. You might like it if you're interested in this topic. And increasingly, I'm having students say, can you put together a reading list? And these, most of these are, you know, non-academic or not directly in line with, with, um, with the course or anything, but the students seem to really enjoy that. So my book that um, I think goes along with this topic, but is a little more with a foot in academia is, and I've, I know I've chatted with some of you about this is, um, by Faith Kearns, Getting to the Heart of Science Communication. Um, so she's at um, UC Extension, so California, and does she's a, a science communicator by in practice. And her book is, I think, to, it seems, I mean, this is like, I, I hate, like meta, I hate using that word, but again, on this conversation that, this idea of how do we have, um, how do we 
communicator science, but almost like be in relationship with those who are um, impacted by the concepts that we're studying and how do we um, create a, a different relationship with the topics and have meaningful work. Um, that was a really bad summary, but <laughs> I think uh, she's sort of flipping this idea around this, you know, this, the silos again, and, and um, is kind of needing to start from the bottom up in communication practice that we need to be in conversation with those that are experiencing these, you know, really dramatic impacts of, of climate change and other natural disasters that we're studying to be able to have work that uh, actually changes people's lives. You know, we can't um, change people's lives without actually understanding their lives. And for many reasons, right. In terms of being able to take that information in, but also to have that information be meaningful and actionable. Um, And so I feel like on this topic of like, this is definitely more in the, like, how do I think through the way I do my work and how I communicate that work. Um, but it, it, it's definitely, uh, I would, I would say it's a fun read, but it's a, it's a, um, like an enjoyable read, you know, it's not like a lighthearted topic, but it's really well-written and it's really grounded in stories. And I think that's one of the main pieces of, of that comes through is how, you know, sharing stories and experiences can connect people and can connect you within your science and you with other people's experiences in your science. And, and so she does a really good job sharing stories of her own and bringing other people's stories in. And I found it really compelling just to read about other people's work, but also to think about, um, really, really think deeply about how I'm doing my research and what I need to change in it. In, In terms of, um, uh, academic articles, one that I think connects with that, that I really enjoyed over the last year. I don't know if you've all seen it. It's the, uh, the piece it's called six modes of, uh, of co-production, um, led by Josie Chambers. I was gonna, I was gonna mention that as one of the papers too. That was really cool. Yeah. Josie and, and I don't know, like 30 co-authors on that, but about this idea of co-production and working, um, working beyond academia. So very much getting into the, the uh, transdisciplinary word, world that I think we're all interested in and in how we do that and the different, the different ways in which we can do that in the different circumstances that we find ourselves in and in, in crafting research and uh, for, for practical usage. Courtney, I have a question. Does, does, um, does she talk about issues of like identity and difference that can be challenging to bridge if you're trying to engage with people in a better way as you, as you do this kind of work? Yeah, I think she gets into that. Um, she approaches it really from um, like laying out in a sense, kind of like a, a toolkit of the, the, the um, skills that you would need and also the support both, you know, within your position and institutionally to do, meaningful science communication. Um, and, and it's from thinking about it as a practitioner perspective. Um, but I think all of it applies to research too, and especially those who, you know, 
like Mike just said, in this co-production model where there is really this clear line between research and practice. Um, but one of, one of the chapters I really like is about listening and how to be a good listener. And I think that gets at what you're talking about, Michael, because I feel like these issues of, of difference and division um, might appear very differently if we come to a, uh, you know, any sort of interaction from a place of listening and learning and finding connections before we jump in and say, hey, I'm here to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was one of my, I mean, it's when I talk about it, it's not like a, this isn't a new concept, right? But I think it's a really important one to bring forefront that we always think of our position as like, I have something to tell, but really we have, we have a lot to learn and a lot to, um, and, and that skill of listening is critical when you're working with communities who have experienced a lot. Um, so I think that, I think that gets at that piece. Mm. So I, in, in line with the kind of enjoyable, but definitely not light and uh, also somewhat non-academic thread that we're on. I read uh, two books this year about, uh, I guess, psychotherapy, psychiatry. One's called Unhinged by Daniel Carlot, Carlot um, which was good. It's, it's, the other book is actually my, maybe my favorite one of the year called The Body Keeps the Score by, I always have to look up this person's um, name because I get it wrong. Yeah, uh, Bessel van der Kolk, I think he's Dutch. And so it's interesting, the, the first book is a pretty uh, blunt criticism of a lot of the field of, of psychotherapy. And this is something that's interest me, interested me for personal and professional reasons for a while. A long time ago, I used to think I wanted to be like a psychotherapist. And it, I think it has some interesting similarities to, it's a very prescriptive field. And a lot of us are interested in institutional prescriptions. So I think there's actually a lot of, intellectually, I think there's a lot to be learned. Um, because one of the arguments that this guy, Daniel Carlett, makes in the book is, is really that um, much of the field of psychotherapy has become dominated by technical prescriptions, by phar- the, the pharmaceutical model, not saying again, that um, there's no place for them, but also that they're not a panacea to use kind of our jargon. He talks about the challenge of, the, what is it, the DSM? It's the Bible of psychotherapy and psychiatry and how we don't actually have a good theoretical understanding for why different pharmaceuticals work the way they do. These serotonin reuptake inhibitors, we, we, have a, we, we know that they work. We don't know why one will work here as, as well as one there, et cetera. And that, you know, that reminded me intellectually again of the challenges that we face in policy sciences where we do have this panacea problem, but we don't, we don't often as often emphasize the processes by which things get implemented. We kind of get stuck in a modality discourse where it's, oh, is it, it's cap and trade or is it, is it, is it a market program or is it going to be a protected area or is it going to be, <clears throat> excuse me, like community-based? And it's, and it's interesting, right? We get stuck in this modality discourse where it's like, oh, is it, is it category X treatment or is it category Y? And we don't think um, often as much about implementation and relationships, right? In, informal relationships matter so much. And so it's been shown that one thing that matters as much as anything else is like the, the nature of the relationship a psychotherapist has with their patient. And like, if you're a reasonably emotionally intelligent human, I think your response is kind of like, well, yeah, of course. Of course, that like matters a lot. 
And similarly, when we think about like the informal relationships that matter in policy, like, of course they matter, like personnel is policy. But again, we still get stuck in like thinking about whether it's policy X versus policy Y. And then the other book I really like this, The Body Keeps the Score. Um, it's actually gotten a lot of notoriety, which is kind of unusual for a quote unquote self-help book. I don't know what, if, if you'd really call it that, but it's in like the New York Times bestseller or something. Ezra Klein recently interviewed the author and it makes this really, I mean, there's several arguments it makes to me, the most powerful one is kind of embodied. And I'm realizing it's kind of funny. I'm saying the word embodied, embodied in the title of the book, which is this, the idea that uh, intense physical experiences such as trauma are not just contained in the head, that it's, it's very much a holistic view of how we respond to experiences. And to me, one of the kind of prescriptive implications is that we can't just intellectualize our way out of our problems, that we need to kind of be more fully aware of uh, the range of responses that we have to things. And again, like to me, that's a very powerful personal lesson um, because as someone who has a tendency to intellectualize, I think we do this also again in policy, right? There's this idea that I don't have to go through difficult behavioral adjustments, right? This is like a standard narrative I feel in our field is that we avoid difficult behavioral interventions um, because of politics, because they're uncomfortable in favor of something that feels like it's conflict and politic free. Um, so to me, that was a very powerful message applied to the realm of like individual trauma and experience. Um, it's a great book too. It's, it's, it, it reads, it doesn't read like a, Oh, here's a recipe. And I just do this. It's very humanistic. It's really interesting. It makes me think back to the book, um, Mike, that you were just, that you started us with where again, this idea of, you know, is it relevant or not? And yet we, we, these silos that we place come in all these different forms. And we, we have this, you know, artificial intellectual silo of, oh, well, if I just give you the information and I, and I strip it of, like, I, I should strip it of context of place and current events and positionality, because then that's going to give you the best opportunity to engage with it, which is often not true, right? It, but it's really, I think this is that concept of, of psychological safety. I can't remember. I think there were some papers about this a while ago and I'm sure there's a lot of literature on it, but about creating a dynamic. And, and I think this goes to Faith's um, book and thinking about um, relationality too, of, you know, how do you create an environment in which somebody is willing to engage with the information and willing, to, and you're willing to engage with it too, in a way that you question your assumptions as well. You know, you have to create a dynamic of psychological safety, which has a lot more, I think has that physical aspect to it as well. Like paying attention to, you know, your own, um, you know, nervous system in terms of how you present yourself and, and are in a space. Um, it's, I, we don't think about that very much. That sounds like a fascinating book. Yeah. And it's not part of our formal training, any of this, right? Maybe it's a little bit, if there's like a module or a certain course where it's like, okay, this is where you learn about this specific topic, but it doesn't feel very integrated into our jobs formally a lot of the time. That reminds me, I read a book earlier this year as well. Uh, it's called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. It's also about psychotherapy. Um, I think the author is Lori Gottlieb. And they also have a podcast where they 
interview. It's about, um, she's a, a therapist and the book gives, I think she follows four patients through and then the fifth patient is herself and she's in therapy as well. <laughs> and it follows the process of going through um, uh, these different patients and all the difference they have. Uh, but I think the main message is kind of this idea that we change in relationships to other people and that if we want to create change, we have to find those things and those relationships, which are, uh, yeah, are at the heart of the problem or at the heart of the solution. Um, it doesn't relate as much to uh, the way you outline those books into science, but you know, it relates to everybody and it has a lot to do with thinking it. I think you pull so many general lessons out of those types of books, like how you work together in teams and how we think about how change happens and trying to convince people to change or how you talk about people about changing. If you're into that topic, I've got a couple of books now. I mean, Stefan, since I mean, it's just funny, we're all basically being reminded of different things we've now done this year. I mean, but mm -hmm. I, I read a book either this year or last year called Blueprint by Nikos, Nikos Christakis, who's a sociologist at uh, Yale. And he's, he's among a group of sociologists that has essentially shown just how socially influenceable we are. So like obesity and smoking and suicide are all contagious socially. Mm. Um, and those are kind of the more obvious, maybe measurable things. But I, th you know, I think it's generalizable to like all of our behaviors, right? And so that's kind of what I hear when you talk is, and I feel like we don't, when we think about like, how do I change? It does feel like it's very unitary. It's like, what does, what does Michael do on his own behaviorally? Do I develop new habits? And we don't think about taking a step back and trying to influence our own social environment. Like, how do I choose? Maybe we say this to like 15 year old teenagers. It's like, you know, choose your friends well, but then we kind of forget about it later on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was listening to a podcast with Nicholas Christakis today, actually. He's, he's a, he's a. He has a lot of good insights. I've, so I've been thinking about this lately in um, in my research and just in general, this idea of change and how like almost just along the lines of what you guys were talking about, how we so much of what we're talking about in this, well, I'd say in the commons community and in a lot of this environmental social science realm is like, it has to do with change. How do we make people change? How do we enable people to change? What are the ba barriers to change? What are the opportunities for change? And it seems like there's this um, underlying uh, assumption or norm that like, we want to find the easiest way or we want to reduce the pain or reduce the suffering, which I think we can all agree with. We don't want that, but I've been, so again, on the, the podcast realm, I was listening to um, Esther Perel. She's a, she's a psychologist and has, she, she has a podcast on relationships and therapy, which is really fascinating, but she has this new little series of it's targeted towards therapists, helping people during this time. Um, but the talking about the concept of change and the idea that change is hard and meaningful change is difficult. And if we're in a good, happy place, we don't really want to engage with that meaningful change. And it's, it's sort of, for me, throwing, uh, like, you know, putting all of this work that we've talked about um, in conflict with the idea of, you know, if change, if change needs to happen, is it instead, you know, how do we navigate and support navigating those difficult changes 
as opposed to finding the path of least resistance. It seems like there's this path of least resistance that we're all trying to find, but um, I guess this is more into the like transformation literature gets into that. But I do think there's this interesting overlap with the psychological literature on change and, and therapy and helping people through change that resonates a lot with the type of topics that we're dealing with that um, in the commons community. Yeah, that actually reminds me of another paper that stuck with me this year. I think it was published in 2020, um, but this is a paper from Rebecca Freeth and Guido Caniglia, Guido, who we had on the podcast just recently. And we're using this framework uh, now in one of our joint projects. And they, I think the title of the paper is Learning to Collaborate While Collaborating. Um, and it was published in Sustainability Science. But they, one of the the things they talk about is epistemic living spaces that all researchers live in or embedded within where they're consciously or unconsciously into an epistemic living space. And they provide this five point framework to help think about how positioning yourself and being aware of how you're positioned in your own epistemic living space, the sense, what have you, what is your epistemology? What is your social dynamics? What is the networks you're part of? What is the temporal uh, nature of your work uh, and spatial network of nature of your work and how that positions us into communities of thoughts and ideas um, and how to become aware of that helps us collaborate. But one of the things which reminded me was when you mentioned that like collaboration is really a difficult thing and a lot of it fails or most of it, you know, can start off pretty difficult or often fails. Um, and that just switching the mentality to recognizing that failure and difficulty is kind of the starting point and the baseline rather than um, and expecting that that will happen at some point during a collaborative process rather than starting with enthusiasm and then getting to the hard point and then getting discouraged and then thinking that that's unusual and then getting frustrated and then having to deal with everyone who's frustrated instead of and if everyone comes to the point like you know at some point during this process it's going to be bad we're going to disagree or we're not going to know where it's going to be. No one's going to do anything for two months. Um, that have, knowing that that's more normal and then that that can help kickstart the process going forward. I thought that was really helpful. I, I think like that's the, a really helpful reframing. Mm. That was all I was going to say. Go ahead, Michael. No, I, um, I liked the nugget of um, at some point it's at some point it's going to be bad. I think that's like a nice thing to hold on to stuff. And I've been working on this book project for like six or seven months. And at times it feels very like self-fulfilling and kind of inspirational. And I'm, I'm learning a lot. And for the last two weeks, I just, I mean, one of the main things I've, I've realized that writing a book involves is actually just reading a bunch so that you actually kind of know something about what you're talking about. And that's just an unlimited rabbit hole that you can get stuck in if you want to. And there's just... It's, I think the word is basically sprawling, as I would describe most academic literature. There's different groups. It's, you know, this is the decentralized nature of academia is that you can find eight different groups of people that are trying to address the same question or issue, and they're all doing it with slightly different vocabulary. And maybe they're arguing mm -hmm. with each other. So if you choose one, align with one of them, you're going to maybe annoy the other ones, which is something that happens in your mind. And so it's like, okay, do I pick this one? And this is like a new space I don't know very well. And this also gets to the challenge of like interdisciplinarity, right? Like I don't have the social confidence in this space I do in like the space where I'm the quote unquote expert. So now I'm trying to like figure out. And so like in the last couple of weeks, I just got 
down this rabbit hole of the literature on like self and collective efficacy. And I was just like, Oh my God, I've just spent four hours and I don't know what I learned. Uh, and so I just left and got a sandwich, but it was like, I needed to almost like retreat from the enterprise. I needed like to just, it, it stopped being something that was like uplifting me and something that I needed to kind of get away from for a bit. And I, I think it's helpful to, to just remember this. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's at some point it will be bad. <laughs> I wonder, I, I'm hoping that this is something that will go away as I get longer in my career, but I feel like at this point in every publication, there's a moment where I'm writing and I find a literature that I didn't know about. And I have like a visceral panic <laughs> that I've missed everything. <laughs> totally. And then I pull myself back out. I think you do have to pull yourself back out. There's like this like, oh shit moment where you're like, okay, there's this thousands of pages I could be reading that would support what I'm trying to say. I'm just not going to read it. I, I often find that I enjoy the pap papers the most that kind that, you know, you were talking about the eight different communities and instead of finding like the lead paper in one of those communities, which is, you know, the epitome of, of that field or area or whatever, rather than being attracted to those, I'm, I'm often, um, I often really enjoy the papers that are, are often written by an outsider that, um, transcend and link a number of those different communities together and and talk about it and and don't pretend to be like the leader in one of those communities but rather just kind of talk about the commonalities and i end up enjoying those papers quite a lot so i'm hearing from you mike because i should just tell myself that i'm transcending i'm transcendent when i feel bad okay <laughs> exactly but i do feel like that maybe that's maybe this isn't a new genre of paper but it feel I agree Mike with what you just said where I feel like they're these guide papers that's like okay I'm new to this can somebody please just guide me through what's out there and how they connect to each other that I'm sure you know that's like the traditional literature review but it feels new to me that we need these guides to help us navigate this stuff which it's interesting because I was in this um I've been involved in this paper um, with colleagues where we're trying, I think we're sort of doing that with some of the CPR literature from, obviously from, um, you know, all, there are many of these, but from a different perspective, thinking of what does it mean for larger scale commons. And we wrote this paper by having weekly meetings over the course of the whole year. <laughs> and speaking of collaboration, I think we hit a point Midsummer, where we're like, we actually have nothing. We have talked every week <laughs> for this whole year, you know, for six months, and we have not, we, we don't have a product, but we had finally gotten to a place of consensus where we sort of agreed with what was happening, which then let us go somewhere with that. But I feel like we needed to have those conversations for that long just to get a sense of the different perspectives that everybody who's in this same community brings and the evidence brace that they bring with them and how they're understanding these words that we use so often, but don't take the time to define. And hopefully this paper will turn into something that's somewhat of a guide, who knows, but um, it just made me realize how that gets overlooked, you know, in this space where, especially now where we, we don't see each other that often to actually have conversations about, you know, when you wrote this word, is this what you meant? That remind me of a paper, uh, Mike, when you mentioned that you like these papers, which connect things off from the outsider. I read a paper like that earlier this year. Um, 
It's called What is Critical Realism and Why Should You Care by Philip Korsky. I think it was published in 2013, but I read it this year. And it was one of those, like I read it and it just, it linked different like thoughts and into the place. And I was like, ah, that's what they've been talking about this whole time. Um, we can link to it. I thought that was, it was one of those moments where I was like, ah, oh, finally someone explained it in a clear way. And that was really helpful. Um, I had another thought, Michael, like when you were saying that you went into a, well, one that you read more when you write, which is comforting because I feel like I read the most when I'm also writing or somehow the motivation is there to make sure your references are right and that you're covering things. But also that like, I often don't realize what I'm learning or its value until later. Mm. And like often mm. not much until like much, much later, like not just the next day, but like six months down the road or something like it'll click in or be like, Oh, I remember when I'm that deep dive. Okay. That makes sense. Um, yeah. But there's like this like latency or something with, where you not sometimes you don't really see the value in what you're doing until the value reveals itself in a later stage for some reason, which was unintended during the original process. Yeah. So that, that so two quick responses, and, and then I wanted to respond to Courtney real quick too. Like, I, it's it's happened dozens of times where I'll be banging my head against the wall trying to like learn some stuff and absorb it and integrate it, and not really having new thoughts. And then I'll take a break and go for a run. And I know this is like such a a trope. And then suddenly my brain just like gets the blood it needs and like halfway through an hour long run, I get like three thoughts and then I need to like scramble home to like write them down. And it's happened dozens of times. Like that's actually the main way in which I've gotten new thoughts is when I'm like an hour to three hours after I'm actually really trying to engage with stuff. 80% of my new thoughts have come in that point. Anybody with kids there's a great ada twist scientist episode about that recently so just plugging that is ada twist like a kid's show yeah okay no i really i mean exercise is great i mean it's such a good catalyst for thinking yeah or not thinking courtney your discussion of like interdisciplinarity reminded me of uh for about two weeks i binged the sam harris podcast um, Sam Harris. That's what I was listening to of... today with, he had Nicholas Christakis on. Oh, did he? Okay. I'll, yeah. I'll check that out. He's good. He's, he's kind of a public intellectual philosoph philosophy, mindfulness guy. He's written some books like all those folks have. And he, he had a good nugget where he was talking about, um, just kind of, he was, I'll, I'll look the interview up. Um, but he was interviewing someone about like busyness and feeling, um, just both being in like a, a position of privilege, but also feeling stretched and like, you don't have like managing to, to not have enough time for everything. And he put it in his term, which I really liked. He said, he said, we feel like everything is an opportunity cost or has an opportunity cost, which I really loved because, you know, I, I, opportunity cost is a very powerful concept from economics, but if you just suddenly start to feel, and I I've done this, I've gotten into spaces where I'm just like everything I do, I'm, a, I feel like I'm aware of what else I could be doing. Mm -hmm. And so I just get like, I have this like 20% of my brain is just, just has this absent, distracted, anxious energy because it's thinking about what I should turn to after I'm done with this thing. And so I don't, I don't fully engage in one thing. I worry about the opportunity cost of that one thing while I'm doing the one thing. So Courtney, when you're talking about like, it needs, it takes time to like engage with people. Like if you all been thinking about like, oh, what are the opportunity costs of like 
all of this, like this, like slow academia, you'd never get off the ground. You know, mm. I think that was one of the, the positives of the early stages of the pandemic when the opportunity costs went way, way down because we weren't scrambling around in the madness of our everyday lives. All the extracurriculars, you know, were jettisoned and suddenly uh, our time was, was ours again. I think that reduced the opportunity costs, right? You weren't missing whatever it is, your, your uh, class at the gym or your kid's soccer practice or anything else. You were just um, back to the basics. It was, it was quite liberating in, in many ways, even as we were restricted in so many ways. Absolutely. The, I also listened to this episode, uh, Mike, I think it was with Oliver Berkman about time. <clears throat> they also talked about uh, this notion like what it, what is time and that I think it got into this point the claim that we are time like ourselves we embody time in the sense that um, we try to overthink it instead of just be it and there's a recurring theme I'm part of this uh, postdoc academy for transformational leadership here in Europe it's like a consortium of postdocs like 30 different postdocs or so um, around in different European countries focused on all types of sustainability research. And we had this long discussion um, in the last session about like that we're not really human beings, we're human doings. And to just be is increasingly difficult these days. There's so much, um, the self-help discourse, for example, is so much focused on optimization that even like free time has to be like optimized uh, so that you like can rest in the optimal way or that you have some sort of side project or side hustle, which brings in money or like gives you some other joy that everything becomes optimized in some sort of way that we start to think about that. And they were talking about this on, on the podcast, I believe. Um, I found it useful. can recommend that episode as well. Is, isn't that the, the, new big thing in Silicon Valley is optimizing your sleep. Well, the, yeah. the broad framework for that, I, I, it, this is not my term is like the quantified self. There was a mm -hmm. couple episodes of the wall street journal podcast that I listened to about. And of course I don't remember the name of this company. Well, so the, the, the bigger story is about Theranos. Have you all heard about that? There's like this wall street journal, um, journalist, John Kerry, we wrote a book called Bad Blood. Now there's a really um, interesting podcast about the trial of Elizabeth Holmes. And it's, it's, it's kind of like the fake it till you make it culture of Silicon Valley um, and, the, and, the, and the Bay Area in general, just like gone way too far. But there's this other company that's not gotten as much press that was um, arguing that could, could measure like things about, meaningfully measure things about our gut biome and like tell us things about our health with it. And you can like get measurements of your gut biome and you can make numbers out of it, but that does not the same thing as saying that those numbers are like meaningful and can help you with decisions. But it, it seemed like another symptom of just being carried away with, well, both the fake it till you make it and, and the bubble dynamics, but also this idea that we, we're gonna quantify everything. And again, this ties deeply into our own fields, right? Like we problematize measurement from the top down a lot because it homogenizes it it lies and ignores all important things and so to me this is just applying that to the self it's like i'm going to measure everything about myself so i can optimize it. it's just exactly what you're saying mike 
but to, you know, you can't manage what isn't measured. So we got to quantify the self. Yeah. And I think when doing that, we get really bad at not doing anything. And therefore we are just being, or just existing, or just not optimizing so that we don't see the value of have being bored, for example, and then the creativity um, and the new thoughts about and seeing things from different perspectives that come from being bored or from just engaging in some menial task, which doesn't achieve anything uh, from an output perspective, um, which is measurable, but like how good that is for you health-wise and for just approaching other things in your life and from a refreshed perspective. It feels like you end up having a top-down relationship with yourself. Yeah. Well, it, it feels, it feels like totally at odds with what we, I mean, this is uh, to state the obvious, like what we know about resilience and redundancy and being able to build in buffers and time to, you know, time to recoup and grow in different ways. I've been thinking about that lately because I feel like since the pandemic started, my life is the opposite of optimized. It's like truly, <laughs> I could just hear my partner laugh. <laughs> this is optimal is having, you know, work from home with coworkers. Uh, you know, it like I have had zero opportunity to do anything in an optimal way. It feels like for now almost two years, but you know, we're cobbling it together still. And I feel like in some ways, Mike, what you said that, um, you know, that luxury of time has, has in some ways aligned things differently for me in the sense that it's helped really prioritize what is meaningful once you have to, once all of those um, compartments that we built up crash down out of necessity, you know, we no longer have an office to go to, kids to go to childcare, a designated time to work during the day. And you have to all of a sudden juggle all of these in a way that you have to prioritize your values really explicitly. Um, and it has been the opposite of optimal, but I do feel like I have a lot greater sense of what I, what I want to do and how I want to do it because of that, that I wouldn't have had without the pandemic. And I'm grateful for that, but I'm certainly not an optimized self right now. I will say <laughs> going for resilience these days. <laughs> yep. Bouncing back. <laughs> well, and this, uh, this optimization or rather the quantification aspect of it also reminds me, uh, Michael, of a bunch of conversations we've had about, um, about research and, you know, thinking about meta uh, analyses projects that we've, that we've been on and, how, you know, I think we both have a sense of cynicism about some of it after having worked, the more we work in it, the more we're thinking, I don't know, are, are we quantifying things that we're trying to aggregate things that are, are truly meaningful? Um, I don't know, maybe it's driving me back to case studies. Yeah, totally. I mean, six or seven years ago, I was all about, you know, we got to compare if we don't compare, what are we doing? And now, yeah, totally, Mike. I, I just don't know if the numbers mean anything or mean as much as we need them to at the end of some of these exercises. Do we still want to talk about field work? All the Does cool feel, places yeah, we've It feels been? like a natural transition. I am going to do field work for the first time since 
uh, the pandemic started in March in the Dominican Republic. So that's, I'm excited about that. I'm also going to be doing my first, well, I won't be doing it that trip, but we're trying to set up an experimental game with some farmers. So I'm also excited about that. I've never done one. We had actually a, a really nice Zoom call with Juan Camilo Cardenas, who's like the godfather of, of all that stuff. So he was very generous to share his time. And it's a neat, I, it's, um, I think it's a neat idea. The basic idea is, is that all these games are public goods games, or at least a lot of them are. Like how do, how do we incentivize people to contribute to the public good? Which, you know, you have to actually answer you have to concretize these abstractions. So what is the public good? And for our case, it's these farmers are trying to get their, they're trying to create a group certification for sustainably produced rice. So it's not an environmental public good, but it's this shared certification that if, and it's a group certification. So they either all get it or they don't. So we're trying to kind of parameterize uh, that scenario, which I'm excited to kind of, I'm excited to learn about the games Honestly, as much as like Mike, you were just saying, let's get back to case studies. I also just like had some fatigue before the pandemic of doing like exploratory case studies where it feels like, well, I'm going to collect some data. I've got kind of a family of hypotheses, but it's not driven by one or two or three. I'm, I'm looking forward to having like some, some specific hypotheses going in and grinding like the, the hypothesis crank a bit in something that's a little more structured. So that's the big thing. I'll be doing. I'm also trying to get to Spain to see Sergio, who we all know. Come visit. Maybe talk to some farmers there. What's up, Stefan? Come visit us over here too. Yes. Yeah. I want to, I need to do like a European swing. Yeah. Field work. Um, I didn't do any field work personally myself this year, but we, my group and students and partners in my projects did lots of field work. Um, and I think the lesson there was one, it was, kind of a nudge uh, to think about new strategies um, that we probably could have been doing before. Um, digital strategies, sending out surveys via phones, for example, as a sampling strategy. Um, but the biggest lesson, I think, um, you know, there's various discussions about this and some articles and things is because most of the work that I work on, it's, it's almost all in tropical countries. So it's, it's pretty far away. It's um, in science systems where we have partners that are not as well developed as the European or the North American science systems in general. And like, if we really want to continue doing science as outsiders in these countries, we really need to invest the funds and capacities that we have to the, the fullest extent to bolster the capacities of those of our partners as much as possible. I think the pandemic made that really obvious for people who weren't as invested in their partners, in their projects. Um, they really struggled to, to collect data, for example, and to, or they didn't invest in bringing their partners on board with the full theoretical ideas or the backgrounds of the concepts or um, the, the, the kind of the background knowledge necessary to implement and collect the data in a rigorous way in the way that was needed. And that's been a learning experience to see how we can like redirect the funds which we have, which would have been used for traveling to invest in uh, some of our partners to do that research, to have more calls discussing and um, doing workshops with research assistants, et cetera, to try to give them more capacities. Um, so in the future we can, 
meet at eye level to some extent in some of the situations where it might not always have been like that historically. So it reminds me of this. So last week I had a conversation with Sybil Diver, who's um, at Stanford that hopefully we'll edit and put up soon on the podcast. But what you're saying reminds me a lot of what she was talking about in the context for her of working with indigenous communities as an allied researcher. And what does it mean to do research that centers, um, you know, in this case, sovereignty, so indigenous sovereignty, but I think there's like a broader case, which is what you're talking about of, that you know, that centers kind of self-agency and leadership and raises the voices of those who are in the community. Um, I, I think that, anyways, I think the conversation with Sybil really reminded me of what you were just saying and how, how can we shift the research approach, just as you're saying, in order to do that, um, in order to, to, to enable capacity and um, research questions and decision-making from, from within, which is really cool. So it sounds I, awesome. Uh, I find myself um, engaging in a wider variety of projects in which the, the start of the project involves me saying, I know absolutely nothing about this particular context. So I'm entirely reliant on you for that. And here are the things that I bring to offer in terms of institutional analysis or study of governance systems. And so if these things are helpful to you, you know, then we can engage in this project and talk more about in line of co-production. Um, an example of this was um, about a year ago, I was contacted by a researcher based in Lebanon um, and she, uh, Laura Awad, and she was interested in looking at the resilience um, within her community uh, of, uh, in response to all the crises happening in Lebanon, you know, financially and high inflation and um, a, a resource a uh, shortage of all, all types compounded by COVID on and on and on. And she uh, was particularly interested in how people were maintaining some food security, um, either through rooftop gardening, through um, ancestral land where people were going back to the countryside and starting to use it in more productive ways than they had. And so she said, can, can we do something with this? And we started to uh, scheme a little bit and we developed a survey and um, she said all right well I'll administer the survey and get back to you in you know six eight weeks um, and I was anticipating you know uh, 50 responses to this survey from her community and she said so um, we have you know 1100 survey responses now and they had used, uh, you know, mobile phones to administer it and had, you know, this huge, and, and I also was concerned given uh, sectarianism in, in Lebanon that it would be focused on one or two particular communities. And instead it was this like broad suite, it was this amazing thing. I was like, how, you know, how is this possible? I was just completely blown away by, um, by what, what, technology enables now. You know, my view of, of getting in the field uh, is quite different after that experience. 
Yeah, we did a very similar project about the impacts on seafood consumption in uh, one province in Indonesia. We, I was I was surprised because we did it also through phone distribution, um, where we used like to some extent we we use our existing networks because the, the WhatsApp is so prevalent there it has like very very high penetrations like ninety percent people so you can send these group chat texts and uh, and and they forward these messages with the survey and we got so many. Um, and then we, we also use like a uh, Facebook ads uh, to target and balance out the, the demographics and the skew um, to try to get it. It wasn't perfect, but it, like it really, we got more than 1500 responses um, across this province, which is fairly representative uh, according to the social demographic data from the state. And like, I was like, well, we should be thinking about this strategy. Um, or just other strategies which are out there for for just collecting data. I have not been in the field. I don't have plans to go in the field. <laughs> I'm really missing it. Um, my work over the last two years has been looking at policy documents, and I'm really ready to talk to some people <laughs> and not just look at policy documents anymore. Um, but it's interesting, this com- th- th- what you were saying, Michael, this tension between the case study and the comparative. I feel that a lot in my work right now from looking at these, these groundwater sustainability plans under the policy in California, where there's this amazing opportunity to have a pretty good sample. So once all of the plans are submitted this January, which most of them are now out in draft form, we'll have over a hundred plans, which is a lot. Um, It's a lot of work to review them as well. Um, And there's this question of, you know, how much does this actually represent what the community is thinking and what they're going to do? And so I find myself both, you know, excited about having this data and the scene um, across these groundwater basins, what each of them in their own unique situation is doing, but then constantly asking myself, what does this mean? And I think there's some value, obviously a policy document is a formal document that has value in and of itself, I think in some cases. Um, but, you know, the question of are, why are that, why is that information in there? What could change, you know, how is that information gonna be implemented? I can't get any of that without talking to people. And I think that this year's just been, the the last two years have been challenging for the reasons that I've mentioned earlier of my lack of optimization of time, that it's hard to really have a field campaign, even virtually. Um, And so it's been really nice to have data that I can turn to that's um, on my, on the, on a time frame that works for me and my work, but I am really missing talking to people. So hopefully that'll come next. Nice. Did we want to chat about new um, new areas of commons research? Yeah, I thought that would be a fun, a fun place to wrap up. I think either new areas of commons research or new areas that you've thought about the commons, like you've seen connections with commons that you haven't before. At least that's where, I, where I'll go with it, but. Mike, do you have, do you want to jump in? Um, sure. I mean, the, the, 
one that I thought was interesting that I enjoyed from the IESC conferences, I really thought the Space Commons was was interesting. I attended some of those sessions with very little to contribute, but just because I was fascinated by what people were thinking about. And it was so much more wide ranging than I thought, you know, from um, ownership of lunar resources to to um, the space occupied by satellites and, and orbital uh, sites um, to to asteroids. I mean, there were so many different topics that I just, I thought it was really fascinating. It was much, um, much uh, more expansive than I had thought. Um, I thought that was really neat. Yeah. I remember for the interview we did for the virtual conference on space, Mike, the, to me, one of the ideas that blew me away is what is like, what do property rights mean in space when there are orbits? Right. Like, how do you describe what you own where when everything is kind of moving and occasionally intersecting with other stuff? Like, we think fish are hard. Yeah. I'm waiting for the NASA to open up positions for common scholars. <clears throat> be great. You never know. The, um, the, other, the other area I think is, is I, I'm personally interested. We're trying to put together... Um, a special issue and and have some workshops around biodiversity in the commons. And for me, um, what I find interesting is that this is something that people talk about as an example all the time. Uh, you know, the global commons of biodiversity, and um, but that seems to be where the analysis stops. I've been doing some you know cursory. Um, searches to find more work on that and there's and very little comes up other than you know that phrase you know the biodiversity the global biodiversity commons and then nothing further than that and um so i've been bringing a group of scholars together to to look at this and try to get a, a broad perspective from from fairly traditional conservation biologists to people that were really into um, commoning and local level interaction with resource uh, use and consumption and, and kind of everything in between to try to have people take this on, you know, what is the, what is biodiversity in the commons mean? Um, so I'm excited to see where that goes um, in the coming year. I've seen some interesting work on that around collective action um, of invasive species. I think I'm thinking of Rebecca Nemec's work. She's at um, I think she's at Colorado State. I'll I'll send it along. It's really neat. She's looking at how community looking at um, controlling invasive species as um, a common pool resource amongst a neighborhood or a community and how people, you know, what enables or incentivizes them to work together or not. I think that she had work in Hawaii and New Zealand. She's a Dharma student, Courtney. I don't know if you knew that. I do know that. That's yeah. how I know her. Okay. <laughs> yes. I guess it yeah. reminds me that we, the most of the commons field, at least the literature that I'm seeing mostly is, is still, it's community-based and you know, more or less small scale types of systems. 
And I guess it just kind of surprises me that we don't focus more on larger scale systems, like just in general, like climate change as an issue and how to look at it from a commons perspective, how to apply associated theories like collective action to larger scale systems, which um, of which there are many different problems. Um, we, we, we seem really comfortable in fisheries and small scale irrigation systems and kind of the classic um, common systems, um, the field's growing. There was the cool paper by Abigail York on climate change and collective action this year too. Um, that hmm. I think it, I, I can't remember which journal it was in, but it was really good. It was thinking about integrating across scales. So I think there's work that's starting to move into this space. Um, but that was some of what this group that I talked about has been thinking about is this, it feels like there's sort of this lack of, um, there's, well, it feels like there's so much relevance with the collective action and the common pool resource theory with all of these really environmental dilemmas broadly that we talk about at any scale. And yet the, the literature on collective action, as we talk about it within the commons community, seems like really struggles to approach and address issues, you know, at broader scales. Yeah. I guess another one I'm thinking about is disaster um, risk reduction to the some extent, but all, but up into the preparedness, the, the response and the recovery. I think often in disasters, you have a, a complete institutional vacuum in some cases, like everything is destroyed. So someone has to start doing something. Um, and thinking about how communities, like just basic provision of commons, like public safety, someone has to provide water and, and provide food. Someone has to watch the kids. Someone has to like, there's a lot of these common services um, that, that communities need, which in a disaster scenario, all the infrastructure is gone and all the external support might be gone for a period of uh, days, weeks, et cetera. And how does, how do, what are the features of resilient communities which enable collective action to be better prepared and to respond and to recover to disasters when you have these like immediate institutional vacuums. Um, that's interesting. Another one I'm thinking about, which is very un not unimportant, but is surfing. And I know we were going to talk about um, kind of these outdoor commons, uh, maybe in another commenting future episode, but how surfing is just getting so popular around the world and waves are a common pool resource. Um, then there's not too much. There's, I think there's a few papers that I've seen out there about it, but I find it interesting that it's almost entirely governed by informal norms, like the entire surfing community. There's not really anywhere which you have formal, like formal property rights um, in most places, unless the property rights are about the land-based property rights accessing a particular spot. Um, but in terms of harvesting the waves, if you want to frame it like that, um, it, there's like a really strong evolution of norms that everyone seems to know. They're not really written anywhere. They get passed on like culturally. Um, you kind of have to like be embedded into the system. Um, you can't like look them up. I mean, you could find probably people who wrote them down uh, things, but how, who gets to go first on the way? What are the rules, like the, the hierarchy and then the different strategies for keeping people safe? Um, and people get mad if you don't follow them and there's going to be conflict. I mean, I feel like that is just like begging for 
a book with just a beautiful cover, right? Some like thesis. It's just like people would eat that up. Yeah. Try to find funding for that. Yeah. So the commons that I've been thinking about lately, which maybe again, this is like the obvious thing, but it's just been front and center for me now for two years with the pandemic is public health and the way that, um, you know, rules in use versus rules on paper um, and the, and social norms, um, information and social networks, how all of those play together. And it's just been really uh, demoralizing in ways, but also in when I put on my intellectual hat, (laughs) really um, fascinating because I feel like this work is really important and you could see it play out day to day. Um, You know, I live right now in Northern Idaho, which I have has really different politics than I'm used to. Um, And, you know, I, I can hear how information networks are shaping the narrative that, um, you know, I, that when I pick my kids up from school or when I interact with people, when I'm buying groceries and, um, and then see the real world consequences of, of those norms and mental models in the statistics locally. Um, and, it's made me, um, you know, I, I think I'm excited about, you know, what I'm doing because of that. Cause I feel like this type of work in these, all these different contexts is really important, but it's also really paralyzing in the sense that I feel like we're so far from knowing how to, to, um, really enable communities to pursue their best interests in the, in the public good of public health. So I'm, you know, at once feeling motivated and paralyzed by the daily reminder of the public health as a, as a, as a public good and, and in some ways a common pool resource and how we, how we can all work together to support that. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me, Courtney, of something that, is sometimes talked in the commons field about, but not a lot, which is the difference between within group cooperation versus between group cooperation. And the fact that there's actually a synergy between within group cooperation and between group conflict. Yeah. And, and th- that, that helps to understand why scaling up governance is hard. It helps to it help. If you don't like to me, if you don't internalize that, then a, a, there's a lot of things that don't make as much sense in the world. And I think what's really fascinating about that is in, in challenging for research, which I think, again, comes back to this question of fieldwork and actually talking to people and going to the sources that some of these um, between group conflicts are in, you know, imaginary or are. Mm-hmm. Um, well, sometimes I feel like arbitrary, like, and there's, there's just been this interesting work in psychology that has gone under the label of the minimum group paradigm, where in the experiments, people will align themselves to an in-group or an out-group based on totally arbitrary criteria. We don't need a reason to say that someone's in or out. 
it's, oh, you have a blue dot and I have a red dot. There's a Dr. Seuss book about this, right? It's like, yeah. oh, some of these people, some of these folks have stars on their bellies. Some of them don't. And, and the, all the whole story is just about how they're upset with each other about who's in and who's out. So it's just like, mm -hmm. it feels like the masks and everything else. It's just like, oh, here's the new thing that some people are using to like create in-group, out-group. And as soon yeah. as that machinery gets mechanized, it's hard to stop it. But it, is, it feels humbling sometimes just like, oh, I, I call myself like the social science expert. But if I go into some of these communities, I don't know what you do. You see uh, the, the recent statistic that um, using Google, I think it's Google Maps, they can, uh, based on the whether there's uh, pickup trucks on the street or cars, uh, whichever one's greater, they can predict uh, presidential election results. I did not see that. It's pretty fantastic. Um, I mean, it's it's a, a bit like the the um, if there's a, a tractor supply store or a Whole Foods in a neighborhood uh, with predictable results too. But again, this is back to this idea of othering, right? And how and 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 um, markers that we use uh, to portray, you know, to, to identify, self-identify and, and to identify to others. Yeah, I think so going back to where we were at the beginning of our conversation and like thinking about relationships and stories and um, one of the things that has been personally challenging, but I think a, a really positive thing for me is, you know, with what we're living I'm realizing I, you know, I'm part of the other group, um, at least in my local community. And yet I have a lot in common with a lot of my neighbors and a lot of the other parents that I interact with and can have these really meaningful relationships, even though I know statistically that we're likely disagree on a number of things. And I, and so it, it's been interesting to navigate that where I'm, I'm trying really hard to um, combat my internal desired other, um, but then realizing that the way we do that is by building relationships um, that can hopefully, you know, I think I, I'm changed by those, but hopefully others as well to find ways to talk about hard subjects. It's something I've thought about for a while, and that's how I think Mike and Michael, who you've been close, much closer to Bloomington and the, the school of thought there is like, how do we thinking about these real world problems, like for example, the pandemic and how do we translate some of the insights um, that come out of like um, the Austrian workshop, for example, things like polycentricity, decentralized governance, contextualization of public policy into things like pandemic management. Like if we take some of these insights seriously, like having a national, like we can think about how is having a national strategy for managing how certain types of behaviors and certain types of regulations. Like, like most of our, our scholarship shows that we want some sort of polycentric arrangement or we want some sort of decentralized contextualized approach. And then how that plays out to where that fits in the political spectrum and how to see the debates and then to think about how that would be solved in a public policy setting like public health and how to manage the pandemic. I mean, I think for certain cases like policing reform, uh, there are good arguments to be made about polycentric governance that, you know, police departments at the local levels 
probably should have some autonomy to adapt their approaches to local neighborhoods, the place that they police. Um, but how does that play out in a public health setting for deciding on pandemic regulations um, when the the public good has um, the local areas are so interconnected and they're interdependent on their outcomes and like the political views of some of the I, I, I kind of wonder where in this political spectrum sometimes I fall when I think of how to apply these approaches um, in practice to different types of public policy scenarios. Yeah, Stefan, you mentioning the workshop reminds me that there was at some point, and maybe you remember this too, Mike, uh, a couple conservative groups that were interested in the work of the workshop and of Lynn because of this emphasis on local governance, because of this apprehension about the government, which um, very much also came from Vincent Ostrom. And I think that I have, I sometimes, Stefan, um, I have a similar response that you do is in some ways I am kind of, I don't know if it's capital or lowercase conservative in the sense that like, I believe in small government to me, the, the, the way in which the conservative movement in the U S gets it wrong is that they, they, if something's lumped under the private box, they think it must be small scale governance. And if it's the public box, they think it's big and scary. And I think that there are big and scary private corporations, just as there are big and scary public organizations. So I think that some people who say that they are for small government, you know, if they're, if you, it's, if you're, if you're small government, you're not necessarily like pro capitalist, pro markets, pro private, all that stuff. Anyway, I didn't mean right. to, make, I didn't mean to like. No, I mean, it's, it's a nuanced discussion about property yeah. rights and, and the many different ways in which property rights can be applied and why, and for what reason, um, which is very nuanced. It really is so context specific on different problems and how we should think about it. The the uh, group that I was thinking about when you when you said that was was Perk based up in Montana. That's very much a uh, um, uh, to to the center right. I would or, or perhaps even further to the right. I don't know how they identify themselves, um, but is taking those ideas of Ostrom and have, have been quite influenced by by Vincent and Lynn both. Um, but Courtney, going back to what you were talking about, I was also struck, this brought back something from when I was working as a, as a business consultant that they, something that they taught us, um, and not, not, I, I never took it in a cynical way, although one could, I suppose, but talking about, uh, style flexing, and that's thinking about who you are as a person and what you represent and how you relate to others through that and, and identify with others. And I took it in a very positive way. So, and I think that's some of what you're doing with your neighbors right now, right? That you're finding these ways to identify with one another and, and thinking about aspects of yourself that, that do fit with that and things that you have in common rather than focusing on the differences in, in this idea of othering. Um, because that's easy enough to do. And I think we all, um, unfortunately do that sometimes in ways that are not helpful. That's an interesting concept. And I think, yeah, yeah I think that we're seeing a lot of both. I, I really like this idea of, of flexing, you know, flexing who we are to uh, accommodate, right? Mm -hmm. uh, well, and signal. And too. signal. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking on, Stefan and Michael, 
what you guys were talking about. Um, another thing that, well, I, I think another angle of that, or, or maybe this is, this is really part of what you were saying, Stefan, is the idea that like collective action can, is, um, can go towards any number of goals. <laughs> and I think about how, how, um, from at least, you know, in commons community or an environmental social science community, there's, well, something in, in the ecological economics community, they talk about a lot as a pre-analytic vision of the idea that we have a, a shared kind of value base that what we desire to pursue is a world in which we have, you know, harmony or co-flourishing between people and the planet and economy. And there's this sort of shared goal. And I feel like that is embedded in a lot of the work that we do in the sense that we want to support people. We want to support thriving communities. We see those as, and as intertwined, but collective action doesn't, need to have anything to do with that. And we can see examples of collective action working against that. Um, but we don't have a lot of that in the literature. Um, and so I yeah. think that's a, an interesting area to explore is like, in what cases do these same um, things that we often talk about as the positive of the strong social norms and the ability for peer monitoring and peer sanctioning um, to enable reaching a more sustainable outcome actually leads us to a less sustainable outcome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, collective action, it's not, depends what you're going for. I mean, the big oil companies are pretty good at working together pretty efficiently and getting things done to achieve their goal yeah. uh, much more efficiently than other people. Well, earlier in the year, we, interviewed uh, Sarah Miro from your institution, Mike ASU, and she talks a lot about urban resilience. And she's got a paper that basically talks about how we need to ask um, resilience, you know, to what and for whom is an abbreviated version. It's, it's more articulated than that. I feel like it's kind of similar with all these concepts, like collective action, you know, who's actually doing it and for whose benefit. You know, you need to at least somewhat politicize each of these concepts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think social movements um, is another, not about commons, but it's an interesting collective action. How do these social movements form and who are the originators? I mean, you can look at some of the main tenets of the theory, like, you know, who are the main leaders? Where, where is the social capital coming from? Um, and what size groups are they starting at and then growing to? And when do they fall apart at what group size? Like, does leadership diminish and interest heterogeneity gets too high? Mm hmm um, I don't know if I've actually mentioned uh, my response to the final prompt. I've been thinking a lot about, well, so to Mike, Courtney and Stefan and a bunch of us have been writing a paper on podcasting, scholarly podcasting. And part of that paper talks about the benefits of podcasting. And, you know, Stefan, you and I interviewed, um, was it Jose Luis Vivero Pol about this process of commenting as well as kind of coming a coming together. And so I think to me, you know, an aspect of, of podcasting is it is about the knowledge commons, right? It is about producing knowledge, making it more available, 
we've talked more recently about how it's it's nice that we're kind of setting up a repository of these interviews and we've got the webinars on the same website and it's searchable and browsable and that's nice that is like that is a knowledge commons and i think another aspect of it is though about this commenting this coming together um, and humanizing people and it reminds me of this concept of social capital that many people have talked about lynn used to talk about it a fair amount. She said something about it that I thought was very nice, which is, you know, social capital is, the, is, is a resource that's unusual because the more you use it, the more you have of it. And if you don't use it, you lose it. You know, it's, so it's use it or lose it. Um, just like water rights in the West, I guess. So um, it's different than a lot, you know, it's, it's, not a com it's not a comical resource. It's kind of got the opposite logic. And so for me, that's been very much um, an important component of, you know, so it is a knowledge commons, but it's, it's not, that sounds kind of technical to me. So it is also about the more humanistic human connection aspect to it, um, which is also an important part of this. It's an important part of the commons element for this. And I think similar projects, I mean, it's what we're doing now. It's like why this is going to be the best part of my like work day is like communicating with you all and sharing ideas and feeling like the way humans supposed to feel. Um, yeah. Well, I agree. I mean, I think the like science communities are public good. They don't just exist. They require maintenance and someone mm -hmm. has to put in, you know, someone has to contribute to the maintenance of those communities. And there are certain individuals, projects, institutions, which are kind of dedicated to doing, that. I mean, science associations being one, of course, mm -hmm. but there are many informal aspects, um, which I hope something like podcasting would be argue uh, to some extent is that podcasts are a new mechanism for maintaining the public good of science communities um, and knowledge commons and the ability of science communities to expand across the, the global network, for example. Um, yeah, and to bring in new and diverse voices and to, to bring in a whole range of new me mechanisms for which we can communicate to hopefully are provisioning those communities in the new way, which makes them more sustainable. Yeah, I feel like when I was just thinking about this, when I was chatting with Sybil last week and anytime that I do an interview or ask somebody to interview them for the podcast, I always have a sentence or a phrase that's, you know, these are the type of conversations that we, you know, never really get to have in the formal academic spaces where we start to understand, you know, what brings somebody to the work and how did they get there and why are they interested and what went right and what went wrong. And those are the things I think those conversations throughout my career have what have really helped me to find myself and to align my values and to see where I want to go. And, and I think that's, I mean, I hope that's what the podcast is, is enabling for, I mean, it's doing that for me as a participant, which is great. But, you know, I hope that that's what it's enabling in line with what you were saying, Michael. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, it's important for that to be a part of our goal. Matt, I like that we try to humanize guests and it's not, you know, tell me your research findings and summarize a regression table for me. Right. It's, it's, it's also about like their journey. And I've heard from guests that they appreciate that, that it's actually, you know, it's not actually that common that you get an opportunity that someone's really interested in hearing about your journey in life. So it's, 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 I, hopefully we're not complimenting ourselves too much by saying that that's a potential, like part of our value proposition. I'm around business people a lot now. So value propositions are everywhere. 
Uh, it's part of our value proposition for the guests as well. Well, I think we you know back to the beginning of this conversation too, we connect through stories. Mm. Um, and I think that the academic literature, it's maybe, you know, there, I've heard from, I was just watching a, um, a keynote at the American Geophysical Union yesterday that was featuring um, like a poet inspirational speaker and talking about storytelling and connecting through storytelling. So we're hearing it through all parts of academia, I think, but um, it's generally not our uh, best skill <laughs> is to connect through stories. Mm. I agree. I mean, what you were saying, Courtney, about those informal conversations being important for me, I would say that's almost everything like that is what's important. You know, it's like everything else is kind of the formalities and things like what's important is the behind the scenes discussions, the informal talks, the opening up, the critical discussions, the sharing of perspectives and opinions. And it's almost as if the formal infrastructure is just there so that the other stuff can happen. And unfortunately, you know, with, with COVID moving online, it's made that more difficult, but hopefully the podcast can feel something like that. But that is so important for adding, like making science social, like putting the socialness into science. And I think the more that we can embed that social aspect of science into the systems that we're studying, the systems that we're trying to change, or that we would want to work together with people to change, the more that socialness becomes integrated into a web and is interconnected. That's kind of where I see as, as progress and transdisciplinarity. I think that links back to some of our earlier discussion on fieldwork as well. I know initially I was always um, pleasantly surprised when people were willing to um, talk with me and and for some interviews as as part of as part of my fieldwork. But I think that those ended up being discussions in which we were talking to, or I was talking to people about about their work and, and what they did and why they were doing things and the stories that they were engaged in. And I think most people are happy to have those opportunities to share their, their work and what's important to them and why they're doing particular things. And oftentimes those get lost in our day-to-day -day things where nobody seems to care about, about our work or, or what we do in our day-to-day -day lives. Yeah. And I think, I think we touch on this a bit in the paper. And again, I don't, I don't want to overstate what we're doing, but I, the idea I think of, or what I, I think that this, I, this is a, a, a real idea <laughs> is that these conversations aren't equally open to everybody. You know, it's it, they're network-based or, you know, there, um, and there might be, you know, any number of reasons that some people might have greater access to having these informal conversations that really shape, you know, how you think about your work, how you see yourself and others, where you see yourself going, um, with mentors. And my hope would be that making some of that more available to others would be helpful. Um, you know, and maybe, help people see that like, oh, these conversations are available and I can have these conversations with others um, or just to listen in on somebody else's. You know, I love the idea of being a fly on the wall in somebody else's conversation with their mentor. 
you know, which I feel like is what many of these conversations are like for us on the podcast. Mm. Well, I guess we should keep it up. <laughs> yeah. Just end with a little self-congratulations there. <laughs> That's right. We're great. <laughs> Thanks. If we're not doing that well, then maybe people will tell us how to do it better. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, should we wrap this up? Yeah, I'm good. This is great. Yeah, thanks, everybody. Yeah, thanks. This is really fun. Thanks for listening, everyone. This has been another episode of the In Common Podcast. See you next year.